This is an ABC podcast. This is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show, broadcasting on the live stream and also on the ABC Listen app and also into Victoria, my old stamping ground. So hello to our listeners there. Coming up on the program, better than expected results for the almond harvest, that's despite flooding and a lack of bees. And the iconic Murray Cod has all but disappeared from large sections of the Darling River in western New South Wales. That's according to an eight-year river monitoring program. Look, our findings with the cod are quite alarming. In our last three years of surveys, uh, and, and this is with, with very experienced people using uh, all of the right survey equipment, uh, we've only been able to find six Murray cod in that reach, which is um, really alarming. And in our last survey in 2022, uh, they didn't find any. And a reminder, of course, you can always send us a text 0467 to uh, let us know your thoughts and our stories uh, on the program today. But first up, beekeepers in New South Wales are being urged to report the results of varroa mite testing as part of efforts to convince other states like Victoria to lift its border restrictions on the movement of hives from and into its blue zone. Of the 15,000 registered beekeepers in the state, both recreational and commercial, only half have reported the results of the mandatory alcohol washers, leading the Department of Primary Industries to start an audit. There's concerns that if borders aren't lifted in time for important pollination events, the price of food will rise, as Kim Honan reports. New South Wales is confident that varroa mite is contained to its red zones, but all state borders remain closed. Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and also the ACT. But DPI varroa mite coordinator Chris Anderson is hoping to see bees moving across borders in the next month or so if more of the state's beekeepers start reporting their test results. Yeah, there's there's the potential that um, a lot of beekeepers are doing their alcohol washes um, but aren't reporting them through to us through the online form. Um, and there's also the, the possibility that the message hasn't got out there um, very broadly. And so we're trying to push at the moment to get that message out to beekeepers all across New South Wales, not just beekeepers in the eradication zones, but beekeepers everywhere. Um, we're after you to go out and do those um, 16 weekly alcohol washes on your apiary sites. Um, you need to wash the number of hives following the formula that's on our um, on our website. So if you say... If you have less than 64 hives on a site, then you need to wash all of those hives. Um, so for most people, they'll just be washing the two or three or, or ten or whatever they have that they're managing. And then for commercial beekeepers, there's obviously a fair bit more involved in that. But we need them to do that. And the reason that we're asking them to do that is to um, assist in getting the state borders reopened so beekeepers can trade across those state borders um, and go to events like almond pollination in Victoria um, coming up this year. And why do you think beekeepers, both commercial and recreational, aren't reporting the results of these alcohol washes? And is there some sort of fine in place for for those that don't? Well, at the moment, we're doing an audit on our beekeeper registration database to identify who hasn't submitted any results at this point in time. Um, But it's good to, to, to note that 
there are thousands of beekeepers who have already submitted results um, and a large number of them are starting to respond to our calls to report and we're very grateful to them for doing the right thing. Chris Anderson from the DPI. The president of the New South Wales Apris Association, Steve Fuller, says beekeepers not reporting the results of alcohol washes are only holding the industry back. We've got to get that data to show that we have got a handle on this and that we aren't just making the figures up. If we can get the actual reported uh, alcohol washes. So if there's 15,000 beekeepers, it doesn't matter if you're recreational or commercial, but if you report your alcohol washes and we get like 80, 90% of beekeepers have done them all, then it's going to show that what, where we've got it. So if it's contained to the purple and red zone, then that can give other states a lot more security in the figures and then we can move on. And the sooner the better the borders are open. It's better for the Queensland and Victorian beekeepers that are stuck in New South Wales. So New South Wales is, is pretty confident that varroa mite is contained to the red and the purple zones. We are. We are really uh, confident there. We're not finding um, anything out in the blue. Uh, we do feel that if anything would have been there, we would have found it by now. So how soon do these borders need to, to reopen for the, for the health of the industry? I know it's not easy to turn around and just say, oh, let's open the borders tomorrow. We need to take this thing steady and and, and manage the way. The point is that we've got pollination starting to come on in all areas. Uh, It's not just a little bit of pollination. Our main pollination is almonds in August. But think of all the fruit and stone fruit, all this sort of stuff that goes on afterwards. We start setting our bees up now to have them ready for six months' time. So when you don't know if the borders are going to be open or things are going to be available for the beekeeper, they've got to plan their business to go ahead. So they might say, well, I'm not doing pollination this year. I'll chase honey. Well, if we haven't got the bees to do pollination, that means the price of pollinated food is going to go up. So this year we've seen it due to floods. What's going to happen next year to uh, pollination? Steve Fuller is the president of the New South Wales Aperists Association. On the Country Hour, it's 11 past 12. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. And also on the live stream and on the ABC Listen app at the moment uh, and not on the radio because we've got the one day cricket on at the moment. You're listening to The Country Hour and uh, let's turn our attention now from bees to almonds. Uh, They're related though. The Almond Board of Australia has released its crop estimate for 2023. 156,200 tonnes is expected to be harvested this year. Tim Jackson, the CEO of the Almond Board of Australia, says it's a strong figure given the issues that growers have faced with flooding and also a lack of bees. The number is better than than expected uh, after the, the myriad of climactic challenges that were thrown at growers over the last 12 months. Longer term, we were looking at 165,000 tonnes for the industry, so we're down at 156. So it's, that sort of reflects that there has been an impact by the floods, hailstorms, wind damage um, that have occurred since, uh, since blossom. Um, but it's still a, a very strong number uh, based on the experiences we've had in, in some of the growing regions. You also had issues getting enough bees into states like Victoria and South Australia to help pollinate almonds. Has that played a role in also 
the crop that is going to be harvested in 2023? The shortage of, of bees in, in Victoria, especially where 60% of our crop is grown, certainly will have an impact. And I think the jury will be out on that one until we actually see some yield data. Um, the ABA has mapped where the stocking rates were down. And then we'll go back into those orchards with the cooperation of the farmers and see what those sort of yields are to get a, a, bit, a much better insight into whether the stocking rates that we've traditionally had, uh, which are five or six highs to the hectare, are required. So if they've still got a bumper crop at you know, two, two highs to the hectare, it may change a lot of people's thinking. Flooding has impacted the key growing regions late last year and into this year. What are growers telling you in terms of um, whether there were orchards that were inundated and things like that? Yes, there's been isolated instances of orchards being inundated with water. Some of those orchards have had uh, tree losses and uh, so that would also uh, reflect in the number being down on what we originally forecast. A um, bit early to see. We, we hear that sometimes it takes up to six months for a tree to turn up its toes, but at this stage... Um, you know, the flooding in the Riverina and along the Murray in Victoria and New South Wales has had an impact on some of the farms. Now, the almond harvest tends to start in a couple of months. Given the weather that you've had, are things expected to kick off on schedule? So the almond orchards have had fairly mild conditions, so we're expecting harvest to start a little bit later. Across the regions, probably is going to be a one to two week later start than, than normal. Normally get... The best yields when we have hot, dry conditions, and we've had anything but that in the last couple of years. Tim Jackson is the CEO of the Almond Board of Australia, and he was speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. It's coming up to a quarter past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. Well, the latest Australian Bureau of Statistics figures for grain exports show the biggest number on record for the month of November 2022. Nearly half a million tonnes of grain was exported in that month. Annie Brown spoke to Matt Kelly from Kelly Grains, a grain handling business based in Finlay in New South Wales. Uh, yeah, look, uh, they come out and they, they were just for the grain exports, which were for, for bulk and, uh, and containers. And we saw a massive month for November um, and essentially the biggest on record and essentially beating um, you know, last year's previous record figure um, by over half, well, nearly over half a million tonnes. And you know, for that month of uh, November, um, you know, Australia exported 3.4 um, million tonnes, which... Look, it just goes to show probably there's a little bit more export capacity out there, but you know, when things kind of go all right in regards to no floods and, and issues with transporting grain to port, um, um, you know, hence, hence the record number. Was that number expected? Look, it was probably a bit surprising, um, but then again, I think just a bit more of the export demand, um, you know, big big harvest in, in, uh, in WA, uh, and we saw quite a bit of a large carryout uh, over there as well. So, um, you know, there's plenty of grain there, um, you know, to export. Mm. And the Australian harvest here locally is wrapped up almost, pretty much? Yeah, look, pretty much. You'd nearly say probably across the border of all Australia would be pretty much 95% completed. And, um, uh, you know, New South Wales has kind of come to, to a screaming halt Um you know, probably overall the big story in New South Wales is probably the quality was better than expected. We probably only only saw only about 20% of the crop downgraded to feed and, and you know, with all the rains, 
and the weather situation before harvest, we're probably expecting that figure to at least be 50% of the crop. So that was a bit surprising. And, and you know, Vic quality and, and quantity, um, it was better than expected. Um, and, you know, a record harvest in SA and, and, and another record run in, in WA. Um, you know, the world's kind of looking at Australia going, geez, there's plenty of grain there to export. Which is, I'm sure, a good thing with all the flooding and everything that we've seen. It might feel like over here it wasn't such a good a good harvest, was it? Uh, look, in, definitely in some parts, um, you know, we, we probably saw some harvest back to, you know, probably 50 to, to 80% compared to last year. But considering the figures we, we've had, um, uh, you know, we're still on track for, for one of the biggest Aussie crops, um, um, uh, you know, compared to the last couple of years. Mm. Look, probably one thing just to keep an eye on, um, it's quite dry in North, North Africa at the moment and essentially about the fourth driest um, you know, weather records uh, on, on, from a historical point of view. So a um, little bit more to play out from there. But then again, you know, there's plenty of cheap um, you know, wheat coming out of the Black Sea as well. Matt Kelly from Kelly Grains in Finlay, New South Wales, speaking there to Annie Brown. 18 minutes past 12. Well, let's uh, turn our attention to flood money now. $70 million has been announced today in uh, Singleton for local councils in the region of the Hunter Valley to repair infrastructure in flood-affected towns. Now, the money will be available for councils to access uh, to then repair damaged parks, sporting facilities and also community spaces like libraries. Here's the local federal MP for the Hunter in New South Wales, Dan Rapacholi. We are here this morning to announce additional funding is now available to help repair community infrastructure damaged by floods in the February and June uh, months last year. This is to combat the effort, this is to combine the effort of the Federal Albanese Labor Government and the New South Wales State Government working together. There is a $70 million under the Community Assets Program which councils can apply for to fund repairs to things like parks, playgrounds, walkways, places of cultural heritage and other community assets like libraries, pedestrian bridges and also community-based preschools. Councils such as Singleton and Musselbrook to the north and Cessnock to the south are eligible to apply and I would encourage them to make the most of this opportunity to secure the funding to help communities rebuild from yet another natural disaster and we've got to continue to build on these. To date, there's been more than $3.5 billion has been co- committed by both governments to help communities and industries recover from the, nat- from the natural disasters that we've been having. Now I'd like to hand over to Deputy Premier and say to say a few words. Thank you. Well, thanks, Dan. And uh, firstly, can I just say uh, it's great to be here in Singleton and to also join the uh, federal member, Dan Repicoli. When you have a look at those floods that occurred in 2022 and 2021, We've actually seen our communities impacted and the state government and the federal government have worked closely together to help rebuild those communities. Now, this particular program today is about helping councils to rebuild those assets that were impacted by flooding during that time. And here in Singleton, uh, we know that this area has been flooded on a number of occasions. We know that a lot of community infrastructure like playgrounds, like parks, like walkways, cycleways, Uh, sporting fields have all been impacted by flooding that we saw uh, last year. That's New South Wales Deputy Premier Paul Toole. On the Country Hour, 20 past 12. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales.
and live streaming on the web and on the ABC Listen app. Now, the plan for a gas pipeline connect to connect the uh, Narrabri gas project to the domestic market is a step closer. The New South Wales government has signed off on the Santos plan to conduct testing and surveys on properties along the proposed route of the Hunter gas pipeline, even if landholders don't consent. But many of, many of the property owners say they found out through media reports and not through any communication from the government. Anne McGowan owns a property in the Singleton area. She's also the vice president of the Hunter Gas Landholder Rights Alliance and she's speaking here with Patrick Bell. Well, we found out from an article in The Australian first up and started because we all network with landholders from here in the Hunter Valley, various LGAs, right up through uh, further to where they're uh, looking to develop gas fields more so. And um, so that's how we started to find out about it. And I think there's been another article published. Uh, I would say, firstly, shock that this has been handled in this way. And secondly, anger. And that's just putting it mildly. Total, total disrespect for the landholders. You mentioned a little earlier that there are quite a few steps uh, involved here. Um, one of those is that uh, despite the authority to survey, uh, the, the company does need to demonstrate that it's made reasonable attempts to negotiate access to properties before it uses the power of the authority and just uh, takes yes. access. Um, yes. What would you consider a, a reasonable attempt to negotiate that access, especially given that... Uh, uh, many of your members are probably unlikely to want to grant it. To start with, before that, we had had discussions with the government about the authority to survey, and we had the opportunity to, for all the landholders to voice their opposition, firstly, and to also request certain, certain changes in the ATS. But none of that has been done. So there were fairly extensive requests put in there that would have helped to protect landholders, perhaps. Although the, the underlying thing was we were all opposed and still are. The risks are enormous and our concerns are justified. This is a destructive project, a white elephant project, that very soon will be a dead asset left in the ground. Anne McGowan from the Hunter Gas Landholder Rights Alliance there and the Deputy Premier Paul Toole was asked today about how the decision was communicated and here's what he had to say. Yeah, look, I can understand that those are, our landholders are upset but I also would expect that Santos uh, takes that into consideration when they go onto people's properties. I would expect them to take every measure in contacting those property owners uh, to ensure that they are talking with them uh, before they go onto their land. And that's so important when you're looking at things around biosecurity, when you're talking around that collaboration, and I would expect Santos to do that. Well, they'll still need to do the uh, pipeline uh, licence, so that's still a process that would need to occur, and that's going to be a very rigorous assessment process as part of the planning proposal. Um, but again, I would expect Santos, when they're going onto landholders' properties, uh, that they are taking into consideration their needs and talking with them. We know there are gas shortages uh, here in this country. We know there are gas short shortages here in New South Wales. Uh, and the gas, if, it's here, if it does come into the future for supply, will be here for New South Wales. That's the Deputy Premier for New South Wales, Paul Toole, there talking about the uh, Hunter Gas Pipeline and uh, Santos. 
It's coming up to 25 minutes past 12 here on the Country Hour uh, in the uh, on the live stream while the cricket is on the radio and uh, we're also on the ABC Listen app and you can always uh, catch up with the Country Hour there. Well, let's uh, turn our attention to sugar now. It'll be another two weeks before the New South Wales sugar industry finishes the 2022 season with the total crop expected to come in 1.35 million tonnes of cane. That's down from the 1.63 million crushed in 2021. The prolonged cane harvest is a result of those catastrophic floods last February, causing significant damage to Sunshine Sugar's three mills in the northern rivers, with continued wet weather also hampering efforts and rebuilding efforts as well. Kondong and Harwood Mills have finished crushing with the Broadwater Mill hit with the largest flood damage bill finishing off the region's harvest. CEO Chris Connors is speaking here about the harvest and other issues with Kim Honan. That flood, catastrophic flood through the end of February, um, $27 million worth of damage in Broadwater Mill and the fact that they, they were able to get it up and then Yes, it's, it was a late start, but at the end of the day, we're going to get all that cane off, so that's a pretty solid achievement, uh, in my view. One of the good things we've seen out of it is that um, these new varieties are achieving great CCS levels. So uh, the Broadwater crop, even last week, with the cane that came through last week, and this week for that matter, uh, are well over 12 CCS, which at this time of year is just historically not not what you'd expect so in that in that situation it's actually hasn't been detrimental from the point of view of the sugar content in the cane so there's a, certainly a positive outlook from there and it's positive that they've they've been able to get all well it looks like they'll get all the cane off uh, we've still got a couple of weeks to go and let's hope the weather holds for us and then what's the estimate that the total crop size for this year uh, about 1.35 in total not a, a great amount, but you know we made a hundred and fifty five thousand tons of sugar with the imports we're bringing down from Bundaberg. Uh, we're still able to keep our sales program where it was, and we're getting good support out of the customers to, to support our um, the increased costs that we've got. Yeah, and how long will you be importing sugar from Bundaberg? Probably two years, I'd say another two years. Next season's probably going to be a lower crush than what this year's is with all the one-year-old that was destroyed. We have seen some good plantings going in, which was positive for the year after, but we are going to be getting sugar out of Rocky Point. We've got an agreement there. It hasn't been signed yet, just a couple of things to sort out at the end of that, and um, that'll be thirty to 40,000 tonnes that we can bring from uh, from Rocky Point as well, which is which is good when you put that with what we're expecting. And then the, the uh, Bundaberg sugar stuff, back pretty close to our normal sales program which is important uh, the refinery is the keystone for for the business and you need that throughput and so what uh, flood recovery program work is still to be done oh there's a whole range of things out there to be done there's particularly all the buildings that have got to be done there's work on all the flood levy bank thing arrangements and just a whole range of jobs that will be paid for under that, that anchor grant program. Yeah, as you said, that the mill was successful with the anchor business program. Have you or will you apply for the supply chain uh, support program? Let me put, put it to you this way first. We've got to get the anchor grant funds. Uh, it's been a long-winded process and I appreciate all the things that the department's got to go through, but 
when you consider that you know everybody thinks we're going to get twelve million dollars um, and we haven't got a cracker yet, so we're running off our own resources from that perspective, and uh, you know that sort of worries you a bit. Yes, we're going to uh, put an application into the supply chain support program. Uh, we've got two different projects that we're looking at at the moment. You're going to put one in, um, and we're going to make that decision this week. So yeah, we'll apply. Uh, hopefully, we'll get something out of that. Well, it has been some months since they announced that you were successful with that $12 million for the Anchor Business Program. Do you know what the, the hold-up is? Oh, look, it's just administrative processes. The local people in the department here have been very good. It's a continual process of review and information being provided. I guess that's one of the things with it is it's not like a normal grant where you're going to build something or do something. This is a grant to support uh, the work that has to be done had to be done as a result of the flood, and you're talking about you know six or seven hundred different projects that that had to be done across all three mills, and so it gets very complicated. And you know the systems don't always handle that sort of stuff. So we're at a point where we're thinking that we're across the line from the point of view of the actual agreement. So we haven't got an agreement signed yet, and we've got all the information that they require there. Um, that's been shown already. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, there's no further delays and we can start to get some of that cash flowing back into the business. Chris Connors, who's the CEO of Sunshine Sugar, a federal government spokesperson, said to date we've seen almost $30 million out the door and we look forward to more being finalised soon. The Albanese government provided $44.3 million towards the $59.3 million joint state Commonwealth anchor business support grant program for the Northern Rivers. The country has contacted the New South Wales government for comment and also uh, the Dairy Cooperative, one of the other six recipients of the grant. It's half past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour and uh, shortly we'll have some weather details. But uh, before we do that, let's get some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Just realised being on the web, you could be, you could hear us overseas. You could yeah, sitting, anywhere. Sitting in We're Manchester, everywhere. You Abs, know, yeah. uh, Dusseldorf, anywhere. Bring all my relatives overseas. Listen to the New South Wales Country Hour. <laughs> That's right. There's not a G they listen, on the show, is there? They listen. I know yeah. that we've had, I've had emails and texts and whatever from journalists in, um, in the United States. So they can oh. pick it up there, yeah. Okay. About stories that we've had on the program and stuff oh, like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah, you're a, you're a popular download over there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's the download. Yeah. <laughs> the um, uh, the uh, seventy uh, ADF personnel uh, leaving uh, Darwin today. Uh, they're heading to the UK and they will be training Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, but in the United Kingdom, uh, this is uh, what is known as Operation Interflex, where basically, yeah. Uh, Defence forces from around the world are in the UK training uh, the Ukrainian soldiers. But no Australian troops will set foot on the Ukraine in the Ukraine. No, yep. no I, mm. I doubt that we'll ever we'll ever see that happen. Uh, flood affected councils across the state can now apply for grants to help them repair uh, community assets such as playgrounds and sports field that were damaged in the floods. Nineteen councils are now eligible to apply for those grants of up to seven and a half million dollars. Uh, there's been a, a revelation from the New South Wales Department of Education. Uh, do you know what they call them? Though? They call these things uh, dashboards, uh, right. which is like a statistics page. If you're in a business, you know, it might show sales or performance oh, yeah. meters or whatever. So yeah. it's, a, it's a digital term, Michael. You know, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from the WWW. It's, it's from the WWW Ooh. world. Um, <laughs> anyway, this dashboard shows that vacancies in 2011 
uh, were just around below 1,000, but they've tripled uh, just under 10 years later uh, with more than 3,000 permanent public school teacher vacancies uh, recorded. So how you fill those... Uh, that's a know. lot of people. That's a lot of that's a lot of gaps. Mm. Uh, the Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, sorry, has been released. She was arrested uh, at a protest in Germany. Um, there's been climate demonstrators uh, blockading a village, uh, which they yeah. wanted to knock down to expand a. Uh, I think it's a, it's a coal, coal mine. Of all things. <laughs> yeah, they say they yeah. need to for the short term. They need the coal. That's yeah, what the government's right. saying. Yeah, yeah mm. given the uh, situation there. Uh, anyway, she's uh, been released and uh, she was seen being carried away by officers, but also smiling. So I think she's in good spirits there. And there's an Australian guy who's uh, sitting in a jail in Bali, but uh, must consider himself probably the luckiest man in the world today. He was arrested uh, at the uh, Bali airport in September, carrying eight grams of heroin and methamphetamines concealed inside his body. Uh, now, he was facing the death penalty. But he argued in court that the drugs, uh, he had the drugs because he was struggling with depression and trauma and the judges accepted the reasoning and has been sentenced to eight months. Good heavens. So. That's, there's, a, there's another story to tell there, I think. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's like unheard of. Keep your head down, son. <laughs> Stay out of trouble. He's got a good lawyer, obviously. I tell you. <laughs> Give me that number. That's right. Yeah, well, that's quite a, quite a yeah. Turn yeah. up for the books, that's absolutely. Turn up for the yeah, books. that one. Yeah. yeah. All right. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for that, and uh, you'll be uh, you'll be on the. I know you'll be you'll be actually on the wireless at one o'clock, won't you? Yes. Uh... Yes, I, I think. think you are. Yes, I think I <laughs> we'll be listening. All right. <laughs> okay. Thanks, thanks, Adam. Adam's story there with the news headlines. He'll be back at one o'clock on ABC News in uh, New South Wales, and uh, also across some of the other networks as well. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details here in New South Wales, and a little bit in Victoria. And Gabrielle Woodhouse joins us now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So, what are the main features on the chart we're looking at today? The main features on the chart is um, a cold front and trough that are moving across, well, the cold front's moving through and has moved through much, much of Victoria and it's starting to move into western New South Wales and that's going to continue up towards the northeast tomorrow and with it we are seeing showers and thunderstorms. So currently on the radar we're seeing some thunderstorms down right along the New South Wales-Victorian border, down near the Alpine area and into parts of the Riverina. And in terms of what we've seen so far with that system as it's travelled through Victoria, we've seen some falls. The highest um, in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning was just under 40 millimetres at Echuca. Um, and since 9 o'clock, we've picked up about 15 millimetres, oh, sorry, 14 millimetres at Hunters Hill. Um, and what we're going to see for the rest of today is these showers and storms um, starting to spread further um, north and, and east through the day. And with that, uh, the risk of seeing some severe thunderstorms as well. So whilst the, the rainfall totals um, with these showers and storms are going to vary from place to place um, and, and be quite hit and miss in nature, particularly with these storms, um, most places are looking at uh, seeing you know, a little bit of rainfall, a couple of millimetres, but if you're caught underneath one of those storms, you could be picking up somewhere between you know, 10 to 20 millimetres, potentially even up to 30 millimetres of rain. Right, a bit hit and miss. And uh, what's likely to happen in the next few days? Yeah, so as that change moves up towards the northeastern parts of New South Wales tomorrow, we'll see those sorts of rainfall totals move further north with it. Um, so we'll probably see some thundery rain persist overnight through the central districts of New South Wales and then become a little bit more likely through the day tomorrow. But um, after that, once we see that change weaken 
um, we'll be sitting in a fairly stationary pattern for um, Friday and into next week. So what we'll see is a trough lingering over western New South Wales and a ridge of high pressure along the coastal parts. So what that is going to do is just going to generate some, some showers along the coast and potentially see some thunderstorms across the northern parts of the New South Wales um, and spreading to, into inland areas as well across the weekend. Um, so much so that by early next week we're looking at uh, the chance of thunderstorms right across the New South Wales inland and, and into Victoria as well. So we're in for a bit of an unsettled period um, and unfortunately with the, the forecast rainfall over the coming week it is going to be very hit and miss um, in terms of where we'll see um, the highest falls but it does seem as though we'll be seeing some showers and thunderstorms most days. So you could get a bit or you could get nothing? Yeah, and, and indeed you could even pick up a fair bit if you're um, caught under directly underneath one of those thunderstorms. But um, at least with this kind of a, a setup, we are seeing much cooler conditions develop. So whilst it is going to be very hot today across, across the inland and indeed right through to some of the coastal parts as well today, um, conditions are going to cool off quite uh, dramatically. So um, down in um, Victoria for today, we're looking at temperatures being in the mid-20s, some places more towards the low-20s. Um, and through inland parts of New South Wales, whilst you know, today we're looking at about 38 degrees at um, Dubbo, tomorrow that's going to cool down to about 29 degrees. So we are looking at um, you know, a quite a significant drop in those temperatures as this system moves through and those you know, milder conditions persisting with a, with a fairly stationary pattern um, through the coming week. Gabrielle, thanks for that. My pleasure. It's 22 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Well, a station owner in far western New South Wales who narrowly avoided flood damage to a property has thanked a good Samaritan for providing food and a boat to help keep her safe. Bindara station owner Barb Arnold has been cut off at her house for the last six months, but since the flooding emergency in Menindee, the river rise began to threaten her home. Ms Arnold says her friend John Erskine made a 340-kilogram round trip with food, water and a boat to her property and also to help build... A levy. I was in a spot of bother. I, the floodwaters have been here, of course, since since we've been cut off since June, and so that's no great problem. But um, um, the last four months, the only access has been from the other side of the river, about nine and a half k's down. And um, <clears throat> and another thing that you need to sort of know is that whatever happens at Menindee, we get it about three and a half days later. But anyway, we'd had the big rise in January, and I was you know all cool with that, and everything was going fine. But on Friday. I was here by myself and the water started rising and I thought, oh, that's a bit unusual. I better do some sandbagging. So I'd started and I contained where the water was and went out to the sand hills to get some more. And two hours later, I come back and the water's come up, you know, like heaps more. So I thought, help, what am I going to do? Can't ring the neighbours, are always flooded between me and them. So I rang the SES on the 1300 number. And um, what I've been doing over the period is using John Erskine as a sort of a unofficial anchor, I suppose. So if I'm doing something that's a little bit dangerous, I just text that I'm doing it and I text when I'm back and um, and that's sort of like someone knows what's happening. So anyway, um, in this case, I was a message that I'd called the SES and, and he recognised that I must be in desperate need because he, you know, to reach out for assistance outside of our place, he thought, oh, this is, you know. So he just grabbed some food and water from his fridge and put put his boat on and, oh, he made the, he had to make, he had to make the, um, inquiries of the local authorities because knowing that the road was closed from Menindi south on the eastern side, he, he rang the police and rang all the other people and, and it ended coming up 340 kilometres round, putting his boat in and and coming up the nine and a half k's and arriving and 
and he um, it was a small 135 Ferguson with a scoop on, and he put up a dirt bank and to stop further inundation because I'd already lost the I'd lost the fight with the other one. Um, you know, he saw a need, he acted, and I'm really really grateful. Um, I know he does this for lots of people in Broken Hill, but I just thought that it was it was. Um, you know, it was. It was. I just want to say thank you, um, publicly, I suppose, in recognition of his selfless effort. You know, it's an unsung hero, really. And I know there's lots of others in the community that are too. But I just wanted to say out there that that was absolutely, yeah. What would have happened uh, had uh, John not made this uh, 340k trip down to to help you? Well, I would have had a cottage inundated with water, which is you know got on wooden wooden stumps so it would have sucked that up and it would have gone onto the flooring and it would have been you know all the flooring and the carpets and all the things inside would have been um wet and there's a commercial kitchen and dining room as well which got the dining room's got carpet on it so it just would have been uh, a you know big cost factor or an insurance job or whatever it happens to be but you know it's always harder to fix a job than it is to prevent a job from being done so um I'm, I'm immensely grateful um that he just heard a need and just acted he didn't Um, you know most people think oh well that sounds you know bad might do something about that but you know he just went bing 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 and and it happened Um, so you know I know there's lots of stories out here like this about the flood and people acting and I I just think that we need to we need to say a public thank you to these people that have stepped out of their their normal comfort zones and done something um, for someone else yeah without request or fanfare or expecting rewards just it's absolutely fantastic Barb Arnold, who's uh, Bindara Station owner, uh, talking about her friend John Erskine there, and she was speaking with Bill Ormond. You're listening to The Country Hour, and it's coming up to uh, um, 18 minutes to one, and shortly we'll have market information for New South Wales and Victoria. But before we do that, let's stay in Western New South Wales. We'll stay talking about the Darling River because the iconic Murray Cod has all but disappeared from large sections of the Darling River in western New South Wales. That's according to an eight-year river monitoring program. The survey, run as part of the Commonwealth Environmental Water Office program, didn't find any Murray cod in the large reach between the towns of Burke and Louth uh, last year, and they only found six over the last three years. That's six cod in the last three years. The native fish have been an important part of Indigenous culture for thousands of years, and the situation is being described as a disaster by many river communities. Dr Paul Frazier is leading the monitoring program and he told Hannah Joes that the COTS numbers are now so low that a natural recovery looks impossible, uh, particularly in that section of the river. Look, our findings with the COD are quite alarming within our last three years of surveys uh, and, and this is with, with very experienced people using uh, all of the right survey equipment. Uh, we've only been able to find six Murray cod in that reach, which is um, really alarming. And in our last survey in 2022, uh, they didn't find any. What do you think is behind this reduction in Murray cod numbers? Look, I think that they've been impacted by a lot of things over a long time, but, but certainly the large droughts that, that ended in sort of like 2019, 2020, 2020 it was, was certainly impacting on these fish. There, was, there wasn't a lot of quality water around, so... Carp certainly have an impact on them. The removal of, of their habitat, like removal of snags and large logs, lack of connectivity up and down the river through our weirs and other, other things. Heavy fishing at various times, including historical fishing when there was commercial fishing in the area. 
Uh, but I think the main the main issue with with them right now is or main two issues are probably just water, reliable, good quality water, and and the carp uh, seem to be a growing issue. Mm. But we've had major flooding for the last couple of years. Has that not done anything to help their numbers recover? Well, that's why I'm most alarmed. Our most recent survey in 2022 was after a couple of years of good flows um, and we were hoping to see more fish, more cod, more native fish, but we didn't. Uh, it's hard for them, hard to see how they can breed back. Uh, there's, there's not enough partners to do that. So what is the alternative? Is there an artificial way to improve their numbers? Yeah, well, look, we can stock cod uh, very well and we've been doing that for years around the Murray-Darling Basin. We really need to make sure that those fish that are stocked have good quality water and reliable water. I mean, they're not that mobile, really. They, don't, they, they can move a bit, but they tend to have home patches. So they're susceptible when when things like the, the latest drought dries the, all, all of the water out. We can't really sustain another event like that for these native species. We just, we'll just lose them. Um, and large, iconic fish like the Murray cod are just too important to lose, I think. And what makes it so important? What are the uh, ecological impacts if we do lose them? Ecologically, the cod are the, the apex predator in the rivers. They're, they're the mm. things that, that eat pretty much anything in there. If you get large, healthy populations, um, they will you know, be at that, have that role of, of controlling other, other species that are coming through and, and, and being that, that apex predator. Um, we can recover the cod. The science of what we, we know now can actually do it. It's really about a societal choice of what, whether we value them enough to... to um, to put in the effort and time to, to recover them. They're a species we can breed, we can stock, uh, we can make sure there's enough water for them to have healthy habitats, um, and we can control the carp, I believe. The Murray cod also has cultural and religious importance for First Nations people. Badger Bates lives in Broken Hill and has fished in the river since he was a child. He says the absence of the cod where they used to be abundant is an ecological catastrophe. I feel this is a disaster and... Also, the people, these so-called water management uh, managers, they should be ashamed of themselves, that's how I feel. I'm 75 years of age. I was reared up on the river. But people will come along and ask me a question and my people a question was holding me, but they don't listen. They just use us as a tick box. The Murray cod, that fish, under we call it, is very important to us. It created the river. It fed my people and myself for thousands of years. My people for thousands of years and me, for 75 years, I've reared up on it. And now it's a disgrace, we can't get it anymore. But the so-called managers, again, they can take the water, kill the fish. But when the cod spawns in the river around December, you are not allowed to catch that fish. It doesn't matter what colour you are the fisheries will book you. But then the government people can kill that fish by taking the water out of the river, and nothing's done. When they take the water out of the river, they kill everything. The river just dies. The water is not managed properly for the people what depend on the river. Mm. Not the big developers. They can take the water, they can make big dams and take the water. But there is a lot of black people that live on the Darling Barker they're just poor, they're just trying to live. We're all trying to live, and we got no water storage. If you look back at all the records, you go to archive, you'll see people on the Darling Barker, on the river out this way, 
where they could catch a lot of fish. A lot of them people was professional fishermen. Every race depended on the river and on that fish to survive and also to make a living. But now there's nothing. But Cam Lay is Director of Freshwater Environment at New South Wales DPI Fisheries and says the disappearance of the cod in reaches of the Darling is an isolated event. It's a bit of an outlier to some degree because the data that's been analysed from DPI Fisheries sort of has shown that Murray cod populations right across the basin um, are probably trending upwards over the last 20 years. However, that's not consistent from site to site. There are, certainly are some areas where, for, for some reason, um, Murray cod have been disproportionately affected, and I think this area between Burke and Louth is one of those. And how many other sites across the basin like this reach between Burke and Louth would there be that are anomalous, as you say, where the populations aren't um, showing an upward trend? It's difficult to give an exact number, but as I said, we've taken effectively all the data that we have from right across the Murray-Darling Basin for the last 20 years and then and, and considered what the, what the sort of the long-term trends are. I understand it's probably difficult to give an exact um, figure. Are you able to give like a ballpark number? Are we talking dozens, hundreds? Uh, it's very difficult to give that number. As I said, the, we, we just take data from all our sites in New South Wales uh, and then make an assessment about what the trajectory of those population trends is. That's the Director of Freshwater Environment at New South Wales Department of Primary Industry Fisheries, Cam Lay, and uh, he was ending that report by Hannah Joes. It's coming up to 10 minutes uh, to one here on the Country Hour, uh, which is uh, broadcasting on the live stream in Victoria and New South Wales and also on the ABC Listen app. And uh, a reminder, you can always send us a text. We've got a couple of texts that come in. One saying that uh, uh, the uh, the weather person needs to be a bit a little bit louder so they can hear them a little bit better. So uh, you can always send me a text. 0467 922 684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. Nine minutes to one. We've got lots of markets, so let's get to market information. First up, let's go to Casino Cattle and with the details, Doug Robson. Just over a thousand head of cattle were yarded, consisting of a good supply of young cattle and a fair penny of cows. The market was quality related, with the planter types struggling to equal last week's prices, while the better quality young cattle saw a little change to slightly dearer. Restock weaner steers ranged from 380 to 568 cents. Restock weaner heifers were slightly dearer in places, 396 to 502. And the yearling steers to feed and restock sold from 340 to 420 cents. Yearling heifers back to the paddock sold according to quality. They ranged from 320 to 436. The increased yarding of cows were 5 cents cheaper. Three and four scores, 255 to 285 cents. Restockers were active in the market, paying up to 278 cents. This is Doug Robsner Casino. Let's go to Carcor Sheep and Lambs and David Monk. Numbers remain similar for a yarding of 5,200 lambs. It was a mixed yarding with some good runs of well-finished new season lambs, along with odd pins of heavier weight old lambs. There were also good numbers of lighter lambs suitable for the feeders and restockers, and there were good numbers of hoggets yarded. Lighter trade lambs were $11 cheaper, while the heavier trade weights were firmed to $4 easier. Trade weight new season lambs sold from 134 to 198 to average 810 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs sold from 80 to 197. 
Heavyweight lambs are also firm to $4 cheaper, with the old lambs over 24 kilograms selling from 180 to 214. Young lambs to the restockers and feeders were firm to $3 cheaper. Young lambs to the restockers sold from 28 to 122, while the feeders paid from 78 to 156. Hoggets were up to $15 cheaper, selling to 140. There were 2300 mixed mutton yatta with most grades were $20 cheaper. Merino ewes sold from 30 to 84, while crossbred ewes sold from 36 to 130. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. Let's go to Yass, Sheep and Lambs now, and Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers eased to 5,400. There are a few good pens of heavy lambs. Trade weights were mixed, and there were good numbers of lighter store lambs. Restockers were strong on the light shorn lambs. The market sold to a firm trend. Restocking lambs, 35 to 110 for the unshorn lambs. Shorn lambs, 120 to 138. Trades, 20 to 24 kilos. 145 to 180, heavy lambs 160 to 198, and they average 760 to 780 for the better lambs. Heavy hoggets 124 to 132. Mutton numbers lifted to 9,800. The quality was similar with mostly medium weights penned. Prices were 15 to 20 cheaper. The light used 24 to 54 dollars. Medium weights 40 to 72, and heavy crossbreds 95 to 106. And this has been Graham Richard. Thanks, Graham. Let's go to Mossvale Cattle now and with the details, David Kent. Good afternoon. Numbers increased by almost 100 for a total yarding of 477 fair to good quality cattle. Young cattle returning the paddock made up the bulk of the offering, along with some well-finished supplementary fed yearlings to suit the processes. There was an increased number of ground cattle and 54 cows. All the usual buyers, with the addition of extra restocker orders, were operating. Young cattle were considerably dearer, ground cattle and cows were cheaper. Yearling steers over 400 kilo to suit the trade, up to 25 cents dearer, 3.32 to 4.70. Yearling heifers to process lifted 23.50 to 4.40. There was strong competition for yearling suiting feeder orders and backgrounders. Yearling steers 2.92 to 4.68 and the heifers averaged 367. 200 to 280 kilo weaner steers were over a dollar dearer than last week's soft market, 410 to 630. The heifer portion also dearer, 414 to 494. Ground steers eased a few cents, 240 to 358. Heavy ground heifers back nine, 260 to 355. Two and three score cows back 12, 180 to 265. Heavy prime cows also cheaper, 260 to 305. The best heavyweight bull reached 270 cents per kilo. This is Dave Kent at Mossvale for MLA. Thanks for that, Dave. Let's go to Cowra Sheep and Lambs now, and a very good afternoon to Rob Pearce. Good afternoon, Michael. There were 4,500 lambs, up by 2,000. Quality improved with the heavy shorn lambs in top condition. There were mainly heavyweights penned, along with a few trades and stores were limited. Medium and heavy trades were 7 to $8 cheaper. 2022 kilos sold from 170 to 188 averaging around $7.65. Cents. Heavyweights were 2 to 5 cheaper, 24 to 26 193 to 206 26 to 30 205 to 235 and 30 plus 240 to a top of 266 averaging 770 to 780 cents. Stores sold from 84 to 145 and mutton numbers increased by 500 for 1000. Prices dropped up to $37 with heavy first cross use selling from 61 to 105 uh, averaging around $2. And this has been Rob Pierce from MLA at Cowra. Thanks for that, Rob. And uh, a reminder to our Victorian listeners listening on the web, you can tune in to the Rural Report tomorrow for details of the Hamilton lamb sale. So Victorian listeners, tune in to the Rural Report in the morning tomorrow for details of that Hamilton lamb sale. But uh, right now, let's go to the Leangatha 
cattle sale and with the details there it's Brendan Fletcher. There were 420 more at 1670 with the usual buying group operating selectively in a cheaper market. Quality was limited in the grown and very good in the young draft. Trade cattle slipped 30 to 60 cents on most sales and more in places. Bullocks lost 45 cents. Manufacturing steers gave back 30 to 50. Vealers Sold from 280 to 450 yearling trade steers, 370 to 440. The heifer portion, 310 to 400. Grown steers and bullocks, 376 to 410. Heavy Friesian steers, 275 to 306. Crossbreds, 285 to 386. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting from Leangatha with cows and bulls still to be sold. Thanks for that, Brendan. Let's go to Horsham Sheep and Lambs and Graham Pimer. Good afternoon, everyone. Lamb numbers increased to 6,000 and sheep numbers were back at 1,200 head. Quality was from average to good but with an excellent run of heavy shorn lambs offered. The usual buying group in attendance and operating in a stronger market at times, 10 to $15 a head up on last week. Medium and heavy trade weight lambs sold from 177 to 198. Heavier weight sold from 230 to 261. Unshorn lambs mostly sold from 125 to 186. Restockers are active, paying from $67 to $150 a head. Sheep were mostly good quality, but attracted less demand, being generally $5 to $10 easier, but close to firm on the middle run. Merino ewes sold to $125, heavy crossbred ewes to $122. The Shorn Light Trade Weight lamb sold from $95 to $107, averaging $770 to $800 cents. Medium Trade Weight sold from $177 to $195, they've averaged $790 to $810. Export Weight Lambs. Sold from 210 to 235 at 770 to 800 cents. Extra heavyweight lamb sold from 230 to 261. Medium weight sheep sold from 56 to 102, ranging from 350 to 420. Heavy hoggets made to 158. Ram sold to 38. And Graham Palmer at Horsham from LA. Thanks, Graham. And uh, you're listening to the Country Hour in on, on the live stream and also on the ABC Listen app in New South Wales and Victoria. Michael Condon here with you. And also a reminder of New South Wales uh, RFS on their Facebook page. They've uh, put an announcement that they've been responding to several hundred grass fires across New South Wales. Now, the, they're saying the current hot weather, which is uh, forecast to continue for the next couple of days at least, will further dry out the landscape, making it increasingly fire prone. There's also to talk about lightning strikes as well. Uh, the uh, New South Wales RFS are reminding people to know their risks and uh, know what to do when fire threatens. They're saying now is the time to repair the property and plan for what you'll do if fire threatens. They're seeing a number of properties that are not prepared for fire. They're saying you can uh, go to the website, search for RFS, plan and prepare and know your risk and uh, you'll get all the details there about what you're doing, what landholders should be doing to prepare because they've seen uh, several hundred grass fires across New South Wales. Lots of grass out there and uh, lots of fires at the moment as well. You've been listening to The Country Hour on the ABC Listen app and on the live stream. It's coming up to one o'clock.